All right, guys, please be seated and uh, turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Zechariah. We'll dismiss our kids to their breakout group. And if you need a Bible, we've got several back here on our resource table. We'll be using it this morning, so uh, feel free to grab one if you don't have one with you. And if you don't have one at all at home, then please just keep it and let it be our gift to you today. So last week, we picked back up with our study of the Old Testament minor prophets. As we said last week, we've been through 10 of these books thus far. We have two that are left, and we are now in the book of Zechariah. Zechariah, uh, as we saw, began in what we could call like a typical way. It began in the way that many of these prophetic books have begun. Uh, We got a little bit of information on the time period. Uh, This is the time of the Persian king Darius. Uh, It's about 20 years after the people of Judah have returned from exile in Babylon, and they've returned to their land, to the city of Jerusalem, and they've begun the process of rebuilding the city, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the wall around the city. Everything was kind of bombed out and decimated. And the message that we saw last week was God telling the people to look to the past and to consider the ways of their fathers, the ways of their ancestors, and to live differently, to look at the things all of your forefathers did wrong, the ways that they wouldn't listen to me or give heed to my words, and as a result found themselves in exile, look at their lives and what they did wrong and live differently as a result. So an incredibly important message for them, an important message for us, Um, but you could also say a somewhat normal message. Like that is kind of a consistent refrain throughout the Bible, is this refrain of, come back to me. Like, what are you doing? Why are you over here following your own path or, uh, you know, like embroiled deep in your own sin? Come back to the Lord. Um, But once we get past Verse, verse 6, the normalcy ends, like, and things start to get weird. So you guys ready to get weird today? Uh, we're going to be getting weird over the weeks, weeks here in Zion. Um, um, as we've seen these minor problems thus far, we've seen, obviously, a good bit of prophecy, right? And prophecy, by its very nature, is often symbolic and metaphorical. That's a common characteristic of prophecy. But much of the prophecy we've seen thus far in the Minor Prophets has been fairly straightforward. While we have seen some symbolism, while we've seen some metaphorical stuff, a lot of it still has been very basic, and it hasn't been obtuse or difficult to interpret. It's not what I would call like heavy metaphor, where you're really kind of having to wade through it and everything seems to be symbolic. If you've ever read the New Testament book of Revelation, for example, that is a book of heavy metaphor, right? There's a lot in there and everything kind of tends to be symbolic. And so you're having to interpret all the different facets of the prophecy. But that really hasn't been the case thus far in most of these minor prophets. But the next six chapters of Zechariah contain eight prophecies that come in the form of dreams. And a lot of commentators note that Zechariah's dreams are really no different from your dreams and my dreams, and that often they're really weird and very strange. Um, The ESV calls these night visions. 
It's not entirely clear if the prophet was actually asleep when he has these visions or if these were just visions that took place at night, but they are deeply metaphorical. And we're going to look at two of these today, two of these eight prophecies. But before we do that, I want to take just a few moments and and give us just a little bit of a flyover of dreams in the Bible and visions in the Bible, Um, because... I'm not sure we all appreciate just how prevalent these things are and how significant or prominent these things seem to be in the scripture. And I think most of us, myself included, don't really have like a theology of dreams, right? Most of us, I mean, we're modern people. Most of us probably put zero stock in the things we dream about, right? We wake up in the morning and uh, our dreams are almost immediately forgotten, and um, if we think about them at all, it's, it's probably only because we have one that's especially strange or just um, for whatever reason really uh, intrusive. It like really sticks with us for some reason. It could be that you might have a little bit of a different relationship if you are one of the two to eight percent of the adult population that has like recurring nightmares which must be like genuinely terrible for you if, if that's the case. But I think for the vast majority of people, the working theory is of dreams is something to the effect of that this is like our subconscious's way of dealing with unresolved or like residual data from the day. That just like in the night, we're still kind of processing and synthesizing information from the day. And yet the Bible has a little bit of a different take, um, or a little bit of a different view of dreams. If we're talking about dreams in the strictest sense, meaning something that happens while a person is asleep, there are at least 21 dreams in the Bible. Uh, They are mostly in the Old Testament. They're mostly in the book of Genesis, In the Old Testament. However, we also find dreams in uh, Judges, in 1 Kings, in the book of Daniel, uh, in the New Testament. Significant dreams are a lot more rare, uh, but they're especially prominent in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, for some reason, contains a number of dreams. If you think about it, if you recall, an angel comes to Joseph in a dream and tells him not to divorce Mary uh, or not to, you know, put her, put her away. Uh, uh, appropriate for Epiphany, the Magi are warned in a dream not to go back to King Herod. Uh, That happens in Matthew's gospel. Joseph and Mary are warned of Herod's uh, plan to murder all the baby boys. And so they are warned to flee to Egypt. Also, a a really interesting one to me is in Matthew 27. And this may be one that you've kind of uh, missed along the way. Uh, But Matthew 27, the wife of Pontius Pilate appears very briefly and has a dream of Jesus's innocence and sends a message to Pilate that, uh, and it says in uh, Matthew 27, 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, Pilate, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered because of him today in a dream. Isn't that fascinating? Uh, uh, there's numerous visions, visions, which are essentially waking dreams that we see in the scriptures, particularly in the prophets. And it can seem, as you read through the prophets, it can seem as if dreams and visions are like a significant part 
of human history or a significant way that God has communicated throughout human history. And yet I'm not sure that that's really true. I'm not sure that we can really make that claim that this is a significant way in which God has communicated. Because when we pull back and look at the whole picture, even though this is something that seems to come up often in the Bible, the reality is probably less than 25 people in the scriptures see visions or have God dreams. Um, And just for context there... Over 3,000 people are named in the scriptures. And so we're talking about less than 1% of people in the pages of scripture who have some kind of supernatural vision or some kind of dream vision that is of significance, a vision in which God is communicating directly. Um, That's also 25 people, by the way, over a span of at least 1,400 years, probably longer, because many of these are in the book of Genesis, which goes back even before the scripture was actually written. The Bible was written over a period of about 1,400 years. So we're talking about a very small number of people over a very large span of time, at least a millennia, probably more. So... All that to say, while we can conclude that God does and has communicated in that way sometimes, and I think the teaching of the Bible is that the door is still open for him to communicate in this way today. After all, as we saw in the prophet Joel, he throws out this prophecy that in the last days, people are going to have visions and dreams. And the apostle Peter repeats that on the day of Pentecost. He says, what Joel was talking about is happening today. If you remember we looked at that. So the door's still open for God to work in this way. Um, but any modern dream or vision or anything that people would put out there and say, this is prophecy, like we have to filter that through the filter of Holy Scripture, because the primary way that God has chosen to communicate with us is through his word. It is through the scriptures. And so we don't believe that God is bringing new revelation today, meaning some kind of revealing that would be counter to what is taught in the scriptures or in addition to what is taught in the scriptures. By and large, the church historically has disavowed any anybody that has said anything that is in addition to or counter to the scriptures. Take, for example, the Book of Mormon, which is proposed to be this addition to the Bible, this new revelation that has arrived. The church Uh, The Orthodox Church at large has historically rejected those kinds of things. And so we believe that the primary way that God has communicated with us is through his word, through the Holy Scripture, and that it is what it claims to be, that it is complete and perfect in its ability to rebuke, to instruct, to give us everything that we need to pursue the way of godliness. That is is what we find in the scripture and the Bible in no way makes the case that this is only part of the story or that we definitely need more things. And so I say, I say that all to say we live in a world today where I'm hearing more about prophetic dreams 
and prophetic revelations. And if these things are all true, then we're living in an unprecedented age of God moving in a way that he never has before and did not even in the time in which scripture was written. Even when scripture was being written, this was a way that God, this was a form that God used very infrequently and with a very small number of people. And so all that to say, we need to be careful with this in today's world and any proposed uh, or purported vision or dream or prophecy, as we've said before, it has to go through this lens of scripture or this filter of the scripture. Now, as I said earlier, there are eight visions that Zechariah has, and these visions are actually arranged in a particular order, and it may not be, be obvious on first reading, but there's actually a pattern to this. And uh, I'm indebted to Dr. Tim Mackerman for illuminating this um, and pointing it out because uh, uh, if you remember these, these visions through eight, they have this coupled symmetry among them. So, for example, the first vision corresponds with the eighth vision. The second vision corresponds with the seventh vision. The third vision corresponds with the sixth vision. Like the, the fourth vision corresponds with the fifth vision. And so there is this interesting symmetry among these. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the first vision and the eighth vision because these two go together, and you'll see what I mean in just a moment. Uh, visions one and eight are both about four horsemen who patrol the earth. So let's look this morning, Zechariah 1, and we're going to begin in verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Iddo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. And then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, these are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you've been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I'm exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease, for while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. 
So we get this first prophecy. Um, we get this vision of four horsemen, which, man, that's a, a really significant. Like, if you were asked to just come up with your own prophecy, your own metaphorical symbolic prophecy, my guess is you're going to employ horsemen or horses in some way in that prophecy because it seems to be a significant theme, particularly when we get into the book of Revelation. So these four horsemen patrol the earth, and their report is that the earth is at rest. Or I think what we would say is the earth is at peace, which was basically true at this time due to the military success of the Persians in defeating Babylon at this particular moment in time. There wasn't necessarily like a lot of fighting going on. But take note of verse 12. Verse 12 says, Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, this is the angel talking to God, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? This 70 years relates to the time that not only Israel's been in exile, or Judah specifically has been in exile in Babylon, but it also relates to a prophecy of restoration for Jerusalem. And this is something that the people would have picked up on in this moment. Um, this all comes from the prophet Jeremiah, who was declaring the word of the Lord during the period of the exile in Babylon. He declared that the exile would last 70 years. He set that timetable, uh, or God through him rather, and, and that afterwards the Lord would restore the glory of Israel. So for those who truly believe in the Lord, um, they are heartened by the fact that they're now returning to their land after 70 years, just like the prophet Jeremiah said would happen. Jeremiah 30 says, for behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, Israel and Judah. So not just the south, but also the north. Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. So the people of Judah are coming back to Jerusalem, and they view this as fulfillment of, of what Jeremiah was talking about. I, I'm going to bring them back to the land I gave to their fathers, and I'm going to store, store the fortunes of people. When it talks of fortunes of his people, it's, it's not necessarily talking, talking about like individual material wealth of people so much as it's, as it's talking about the glory of the nation itself. And um, this would draw the people's attention back to the time of like King David and King Solomon, which really was a golden age for Israel. Like it was a time, yes, of great material wealth, but also a time of great military power. It was a time in which many of the people were flourishing. It was a period of peace. And so when the people think of the fortunes of Israel being restored, more than likely that's what their minds are drawn back to is this time of David which was before any of them existed, right? Before their grandfathers, great-grandfathers, great-great-grandfathers. It was hundreds of years in the past. But they look back at that time, like if you're thinking, make Israel great again, that's when it was great, in their opinion. Like that's when things were really good. And so this prophecy from Jeremiah is, is turning their attention back to that. And as they start to come back from Babylon, they think, okay, it's happening. God's doing the thing that he said he would do. Now, here's the rub in all of this. 
For Zechariah's audience, this prophecy is only partly true. They're only seeing like a partial fulfillment of this. They've returned to the land, but it's not really their land, right? They're not in power. The Persians are in power. The Persians control the land. These people are still subservient to the Persians. The Persians have just graciously let them go home. They're not holding them any longer in cities that are not their home countries. And the Persians have also been gracious to allow them to rebuild and to build their temple. And they're not forcing them to engage in the pagan Persian religions. They're allowing them their own religious customs. But it's not their land anymore. It's controlled by somebody else. No one at this time believed that looking around at this decimated city with a half-built temple, that this is the fortunes of Israel having been restored. Like, no one is thinking this. The big question now is, when is God going to do this stuff? All this stuff he promised, because it's 70 years now, and we're back, and what's this? What is this? When is God going to do what he said? So the question in our text, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem, points to this. And so this first vision of horsemen, it ends with this reassurance that restoration is coming. Verse 16 Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. If you remember at this time, we're about 20 years since the people started returning. They began the process of rebuilding the temple, but they're not finished. The foundations are laid. A little bit of building has happened, but it is not done by any stretch of the imagination. So God says here, my house will be rebuilt. Then verse 17, cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Notice that language there. I will again choose Jerusalem, meaning not simply that I will be on your team or I'll be on your side, but but literally I will choose to be with you. I will choose to be among you. So God says this is still going to happen, but notice that We get no sense of when. We get no sense of when. He doesn't tell us um, a date. He doesn't give us a timeline. He says it's coming. It's like be patient and wait for it. So with those things in mind, let's look at the corresponding prophecy. Turn over to chapter 6, and we're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 6. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out, from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. And then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them, and the dappled ones go toward the south country. And when the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the the earth. And, And then he cried to me, behold, those who go toward the north country. 
have set my spirit at rest in country. These, these things are all happening in the same but by the way. This is, this is a, a dream and many more prophecies to see some look at next week that all occur on the same evening. And so again, this vision of horsemen, but this time the meaning is perhaps a bit more obtuse. It isn't quite as spelled out for us. But I think here's the big takeaway in both of these and this image of horses and horsemen and chariots. I think the big takeaway here particularly in light of the first oracle, is, is like God's sovereign power. Um, God has made a promise. God is fully capable of accomplishing his promise because he is in full control of the earth. And even these realms like that are, that are like unknown to us, that are unseen by us. This idea that these horsemen, these chariots that could represent just like might and power in the ancient world, it certainly represented military might, strong horses, pulling chariots, going in every direction, right? God is in control of all of this. He is sovereign over all of this. And he is powerful. And the insinuation is this. There is nothing outside of his control. There is nothing outside of his ability. Even though you are back in a city that's bombed out and you've got a half-built temple over here and you're trying to reconstruct this wall around the city, even though it seems like we don't have the resources to do this and we don't have the manpower to do this or the knowledge to do this really well, God is still capable of bringing these things to fruition. The fulfillment of this prophecy does not rest on you alone, Israel. God is the one who has promised to restore the fortunes of Israel after their return. And he is capable of doing it. And these visions give, give like this resounding, yes, he is capable. Yes, he is powerful. Yes, it will still happen. And he is more than able to accomplish his promises. And so this is meant to be received, not as like a, a prophecy of warning, not as a prophecy of curse, but, but as a word of encouragement to the people that, that God is fully in this. God has not forgotten. God doesn't need to be reminded of his promises. He knows exactly what he said he would do, and he knows exactly when and how it will take place. One thing that seems clear is that the temple must be rebuilt. Um, when we read the book of Haggai a few weeks ago, that was a significant theme in the book of Haggai, that very first group of people who returned from exile. It is also a part of Je uh, Zechariah's message here as well. You have to pick up this work. You have to continue this process of rebuilding. But you guys, in and of yourselves, you're not going to bring about this golden age. You're not going to bring about this renaissance. God is the one who does this. Again, chapter 1, verse 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. Note those words. Remember, God said, I will choose you again. Here he says, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. The measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. So Zechariah is a bearer of good news here. And unlike many of his predecessors who brought bad news, you guys are <laughs> so lost in your sin that destruction and exile are going to come. Zechariah, he gets this privilege of getting to bring comforting words to the people. 
But don't forget where all this started last week in this introduction to Zechariah, the first six verses of this book. All of this is predicated on the people being faithful and obedient to the Lord. What was his basic message? The very first thing God said to the people, return to me and what? And I will return to you. And I think God means that like literally and physically, not just in this sort of ethereal spiritual sense, but in a very physical way. The first temple that was built by Solomon, the temple that got destroyed, it was God's dwelling place among the people. The priests every year would literally go into the center of the most holy place, the holy of holies, and would literally step into the presence of God in the temple. God is saying, return your obedience, return your allegiance to me and me alone, and I will restore my dwelling place among you. Now, obviously, the people would have been envisioning a return to the exact same thing in the exact same way that it was before. They would have been envisioning a restored temple, uh, a holy of holies, the presence of God in that holy place in the middle of the temple, and um, as soon as get that, that thing, poof, you know, like God's going to be there. But, but that's not what happened. It's not, it's not what happened. Fast, fast 400 years, the temple temple's finished. It's been completed. During the time of King Herod, during the time uh, leading up to Jesus' birth, the temple had even been expanded. And um, it was really an amazing temple once again. And yet we get to the time of Christ, and have Israel's fortunes been restored? No. They've exchanged being subservient to one superpower to being subservient to a totally different superpower, this time Rome. They are still a subjugated people. And then God does something totally unexpected. He does something totally unexpected, even though he told the people what would happen. All the way back, the prophet Isaiah said, for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So you want to talk about restore the fortunes of Israel. Isaiah said someone is coming to restore the fortunes of Israel in such a way that the increase of the government and of peace... There will be no end. And on the throne of David, right? Remember, we, th we think back to that golden age, the time of David. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So Isaiah said, a child is coming who will restore the fortunes of Israel. It's not simply about you guys getting stuff rebuilt so God can come back and live here. No, no, no. God himself has to come and make this prophecy a reality. 
Guys, Christ is the fulfillment of everything we're talking about here. He is the agent that brings restoration to the people. Once again, God's dwelling place is with the people in the incarnation. And the word became flesh and did what? Dwelt among us. But this time, it's not in the center of the temple. It's the incarnation of Christ, who was called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Not just with us in that uber spiritual sense, but in a real embodied flesh and blood sense, an incarnational walking around sense. This is the real deal. This is the light that illuminates the darkness. This is the child that restores the fortunes of Israel. It was true for Israel, and it is very much true for us today as well. In promising to restore the fortunes of Israel, God was also restoring the fortunes of the whole world. Not just one geographical country in one part of the world. God is restoring the whole world. Which makes sense if you consider God's original intention for the descendants of Abraham, for the the people who would eventually become the nation of Israel. All of this goes all the way back to God's original promises that he made to Abraham, his original covenant with Abraham in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, right? He called Abraham to leave where he was and to go somewhere he'd never been before. And here's his promise. He says, I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And listen, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All of this is accomplished through Christ. And as we'll see as we press on in Zechariah, this will become even more clear. For us today, though, let us not miss that this is still the answer for us. This is not just the Sunday school answer. It's not just the historical answer. It is the answer for us also. If the question is, how will God restore us? How will God restore our fortunes? How will God make our future bright? Not just in like an immediate or earthly sense, but in an eternal eternal sense. And and Jesus is the answer to that question as well. Guys, this is the purpose of the epiphany, that that we would really seek Christ for who he is. Not, not just his historic figure, figure not just as a wise wise, that we would see that we are also a people, much like the forefathers that Zechariah called the Israelites to look back to, we are also a people hopelessly lost in our sin, incapable of saving ourselves. And yet this blessing has come to us in the form of Christ. Unto us a child has been born. He is our hope. He is our savior. And and epiphany, which literally means manifestation, as we said earlier, it's it's this moment of understanding. I think that's how we think of an epiphany, right? That it's this eureka moment that I, I was cloudy or foggy on something or I couldn't see it. And then like all of a sudden I see it. I get it. It makes sense. 
a moment of understanding. It's the moment or the series of moments where we don't just see Christ, but we see Christ. Meaning we understand, we get it. I recognize who this really is. That's the epiphany. You know, interestingly, a traditional view is that the Magi were, in fact, Persians. That they were Persian priests in the pagan religions of the Persians that looked to the stars, practiced astrology, saw this sign in the sky, and came to see what was happening. The moment where people were watching John the Baptist, John the Baptist baptized Jesus, they're seeing John just baptize yet another person, right? John baptized hundreds if not thousands of people, and, and yet in that moment, it becomes clear this is not just another person. There's literally a booming voice from heaven. That's so rare that that actually happens in the pages of Scripture. And here's a moment where everybody, everybody hears this. That this is in fact the Son of God. And here's my question. Has this dawned on you as well? Has this dawned on you also? Has, has your heart truly been illuminated to this truth? There are so many people who see Christ, but, but they don't see him. There are very few people in this room who did not grow up in the church, who, who weren't handed this religious system, who weren't handed this Jesus thing, who haven't, you know, gone along with it, you know, because it's, it's what's, conducive to good relationships with family members and it's also just kind of efficacious for us in our culture around here in the south to be religious people or to be engaged in religious things it's so easy around here to see him and not see him or or to act as if we are truly people who see him the question though is not just are you able to fool other people the question is has has your heart truly awakened to the reality of who christ is Because I think that once, and this is sort of a litmus test, once we truly see who he is, the trajectory of our lives is forever changed. It doesn't mean that we suddenly become perfect people or sinless people or, or people who no longer wrestle with doubt in any way, shape, or form, but, but there, is, there is this change in trajectory and It may not have been one moment. It may have been a series of moments. It may have been a process. But there is no unseeing what you've seen. There is no going back. Those who truly see Christ are compelled to follow him, to become his disciples, to begin to pattern their lives after him, to truly make him their Lord and master, their king. My prayer is that that would be true of our lives, our church family today. Let us pray. Father, as we consider your scripture this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would truly illumine our hearts. God, it is so clear that you have brought many, many to, to faith just, just through the hearing of your word. And that your word does not return void, that it is always working, that it is living and active. And that it splits us open 
Even if other people don't see it, it it cuts us to the core and it reveals who we really are on the inside. And I pray, Father, today as we consider um, the writings of a prophet who was writing literally hundreds of years before the time of Christ, that we will see your your sovereign hand at work and and the ways that you have been weaving this story together throughout me. And I pray that we would be awake either for the first first time yet again to the reality of Christ. And Father, as we enter into this new year, I, I pray that you would give all of us a fresh set of eyes, a fresh perspective, a renewed focus on devoting ourselves to following Jesus as our master, a renewed desire to truly pattern our lives after him and to make him the central component of our lives. God, give us that desire, place it in our heart. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Stand with us.